0: Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Rufus Gifford. He served as finance director for Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, US ambassador to Denmark, was a candidate in the 3rd congressional district in Massachusetts and is on the board of Run for Something, an organisation which helps young candidates from non-traditional backgrounds run for political office. He's also an award-winning reality TV star, having been the subject of a two-series documentary entitled I Am the Ambassador. Ambassador Rufus Gifford, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Edward. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. For those that might not know what an ambassador does day to day, could you tell us what your role involves? Yeah, I think it's um
1: one of the most uh, wonderful and rewarding and interesting things about being an ambassador is that every day uh, truly is different. I think, uh, it, I often started the day, uh, getting up relatively early, heading to the embassy, and I'd start the day with a press brief, essentially a, a briefing from both the Danish staff at my embassy as well as the Americans, just digesting the day's news, mostly the day's day, the Danish news, uh, to try to understand what we might encounter over the course of that day. Um, and then, you know, it would truly vary. I had a very, I had a slightly different style in my approach. Of, my my approach to diplomacy uh, was slightly different. It was more open. I I, I felt like Americans. Um, far too often sort of sat in their ivory towers and their beautiful residences and embassies and sort of expected everyone to come to them, Um, especially as I served in a country like Denmark, which is incredibly egalitarian. I thought it was very important for me to get out from behind my desk and and go to people. So I very often I spent most of my day outside the embassy um, trying to do what I could to, uh, to engage with Danes at every level of society that was, of course, political, um, it was, of course, business leaders, but I think what was most interesting for me, ultimately, was engaging very publicly and openly with average Danes, so uh, my favorite activity would be to go to a Danish high school um, where you'd have 17- and 18-year-old kids, and there would be, say, a 1,000 of them, and just having a big and open and honest dialogue about the bilateral relationship, the issues going on in the world, the concerns they had about the United States. Um, and so that was a very, very big part of my day, but of course there was the ceremonial stuff too. We had, you have your wreath layings, you have your, uh, certainly military exercises, uh, that would be a very kind of typical ambassadorial activity. Uh, there would certainly be meetings at the foreign ministry and the defense ministry and all the rest, but ultimately, and, and, and then of course, receptions in the evening. Uh, but I tried to, I tried to be as active as I possibly could, uh, it's certainly a 24-7 job, but it's also kind of a job as ambassador. Uh, you make of it what uh, you want it to be in some ways, uh, and you can shape it in that way. And I thought that was really interesting.
0: Do you think a U.S. ambassador's job is to suggest policy or diplomatic approaches, or is it simply to follow the orders from the president and their administration? Uh, both.
1: I mean, it's certainly the latter. Right? So the, the, the worst thing I could ever do was somehow undermine the policy work of, of the Obama administration. But it's certainly your job to advise the State Department or the White House um, if they if we thought that something we were doing uh, wasn't resonating uh, in, in some way, shape or form. Um, so I, I always, I mean, I think you have to, it's interesting. I mean, I think at one point you, you can never under undermine the political, um, the political and policy agenda of the Obama administration. Uh, I couldn't do that, nor would I have wanted to, but I still think you have to do it with an element of humanity and an element of personal touch. Uh, there, so I, I, I I I always wanted to make it mine while representing the Obama administration as well as I could, and I know that sounds a little bit strange, right? but it, it goes back to actually what something uh, that President Obama told me right before I left to go be ambassador, and we were backstage at an event in Dallas, and I said, you know, how do I do this job again? I mean, I was a 38 year old political staffer who had never anticipated being an ambassador, and he said, just go be you. Go talk about the country you love. Um, and I loved that advice. Uh, you know, it sounds almost a little bit trite, but it made so much sense because how do you represent 300 million, 300 million plus people It's it's uh, in the United States? Uh, the only way you can do it, I think, is if you're really true to yourself and your own personal story. So I did try to add that element of humanity and personality to the job every single day while at the same time uh supporting the uh Obama supporting Obama foreign policy and domestic policy. Uh and that's that sometimes isn't easy uh, because of course there there could be times where you would disagree personally with the policy of the Obama administration. Now that was very those instances were very few and far between for me, uh but you still have to do it. Uh but it's it, you always figure out how to strike that balance.
0: You talked about how You might have had some differences with the Obama administration and the approach they wanted to take. Given the divisions within U.S. politics under Trump's presidency, if an ambassador was to strongly disagree with policy decisions, how should they act? Should they make those differences known to the president? Should they resign from the job in protest? Should they just outright disagree and undermine the president? How how do they approach that?
1: Yeah, the, the third option you lay out, I think, is unacceptable. Uh, meaning, undermining the, um, the American process, I think, is a, is is a bad idea. So, I think the first two you raise, though, are absolute possibilities. So, I, I can speak. Th- from the heart and personally and I consider myself a very patriotic american there's no way that i could serve or represent the trump administration overseas i could not do it i wouldn't know how to do it uh, you know i spent 4 years building trust and relationships with danes talking about things like the iran deal like the paris climate agreement like uh, uh, like how progressive trade deals can uh, help help our society help help our uh, help help our communities our countries our societies like how uh, liberal immigration policy only helps build countries and 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 is a positive uh, is is positive for society. So the idea that I could just go and turn on a dime 180 degrees and say the exact opposite of what I'd been saying personally that I believed in personally for three and a half years, I just simply couldn't do. So. I would have resigned even if I wasn't forced out as I was forced out. Um, but I do think and I said this right after the Trump election. And there were a lot of people who worked for the U.S. State Department who were devastated by the election of Donald Trump. And I remember saying to them on Election Day yeah, through uh, through tears uh, on both both of our sides, I said, you know, please, I don't have a choice. I have got to go home. Uh, he would never let me stay, but please stay uh, because you're going to have a lot of people coming in here who don't have a sense of history, don't have a sense of what you all do. And please work work with them on the inside. Make them smarter. See if you can try to change their minds uh, about things like the Transatlantic Alliance, about things like globalization, about things like liberal immigration policy, about things like climate change. Uh, and, you know, I... I I think honestly, it's gotten much, much, much harder uh, in the last couple of years to do that, which is why we have seen such significant high-level resignations from inside the, 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 the uh, American diplomatic space. Um, but it's, uh, but I do think that's certainly important to make sure you don't just you don't just resign don't just we can't have people just resigning in protest you also have people have to have people trying to change policy from the inside i can tell you firsthand that i was made so much smarter by the amazing men and women who were career foreign service officers Uh, and they made me better at my job every single day and i and i hope that some of them are doing that inside the trump administration now Um, I think there's a level of stubbornness on the part of uh, Trump's foreign policy that that may not may make that much more difficult. Uh, But it's um, but I still think we got to try.
0: So you think there could be some value to having that dissenting voice in the room, putting a different viewpoint to what Trump is proposing, what those in his administration are proposing? or, Or even back when Barack Obama was president, that if he was saying something that, people disagree with it, helped having those dissenting voices to say, actually, this is what we think, and this is why this idea would be better than yours?
1: I, without a doubt. I mean, I, I think that's the way democracy has to work. And I think we did see that in, in the Obama administration. I, I, um, I think you saw the Obama administration very much, and our foreign policy, our, milita- our military and security policy dictated in many ways by, uh, you know, for example, Donald uh, Barack Obama didn't have military experience uh, at the time, had not uh, had not engaged uh, much actively with the American military presence globally. And so I think as he began to shape his put his mark on American foreign and security policy, uh, taking the advice of our generals, Uh, it certainly did help shape and people like, for example, Hillary Clinton, who was, of course, a rival of President Obama, uh, but was smarter and more sophisticated on the global stage, um, than President Obama was in 2009 when he started. So actually creating that to use the sort of Doris Kearns Goodwin Abraham Lincoln analogy, that team of rivals, uh, where you can actually sit around a table and discuss the different options and actively disagree with the president. Ultimately, you know, he will make the ultimate decision. Um, I think it's very, very important. Uh, and now, in the Trump administration, the sad thing that I see in the Trump administration, and I could talk about how sad I am about the Trump administration for hours and hours and hours, but you see those dissenting voices get fired over and over and over again, and that we don't even have to talk about who they are. We all know who they are. So it's the moment you disagree with the president, you're considered a disloyalist, a traitor, and you leave or are forced out. You resign or are forced out. And I think that's enormously problematic. Uh, in, in you know, for example, if you look at, say, Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson or H.R. McMaster, these people who were early considered to be early leaders of the Trump administration, none of them are there anymore uh, because they were advocating in many ways to stay the course, Foreign policy on things like Syria, on things like Iran, on things like the Paris climate agreement, um, and, and, or a less reckless approach to North Korean foreign policy, uh, more, more moderate, uh, and, uh, they've all, they've all been forced out or resigned in, in protest. And I think that's really, really problematic. I, I don't think Donald Trump is particularly open to different perspectives.
0: A lot has been said about the impact of Donald Trump's presidency on America's standing in the world. How do you believe the Trump administration's actions and its policies have impacted the way other countries view it? I
1: think it's real. Uh, I do think it's real. Um, I
0: think that
1: the international community will give us the benefit of the doubt for a a time, um, understanding that uh that various countries uh are taking a political turn that i think a lot of the global community find troubling brexit is probably the next ne- next best example of this uh, but it, without a doubt i think our brand has been adversely has has been has been impacted in an adverse way uh and quite dramatically and it and it's just getting worse because the Trump administration doesn't do anything to try to make it better. Um, and I think the two best examples of that re- in recent uh, history are both the uh, the sort of bizarre and, and disastrous uh, North Korean summit in, in Vietnam. And then a couple of weeks before that, the sort of bizarre NATO uh, ministerial in Poland uh, a couple of weeks ago, where I you just saw... Mike Pence, uh, deliver the American message there and greeted with, uh, at least from my interpretation of it, greeted with, uh, considerable chilliness. And I think that's problematic. That being said, and I, and I say this all the time, do I think that we can bounce back very quickly? I do. Um, but Americans, but that, that, that then rests, uh, uh, on the American voters in 2020. I think that if we make, if we understand that uh, we made the wrong decision here and change course aggressively. I think uh, the American brand bounces back. Now, if we reelect him, I think it becomes very, very troubling. I, I am nervous at that point about the future of NATO, about the future of, uh, well, it, we could talk about lots of different things that I'd be concerned about. But I think the American brand uh, becomes more and more challenged if we reelect him in 2020. And we just simply, in my mind, we just simply cannot do that.
0: You talked about bouncing back there. How can yeah. the U.S. and members of the U.S. diplomatic corps protect America's standing in the world during Trump's presidency and then rebuild it after he leaves office? Well, and this is something that actually I continue to try to do internationally. And I,
1: I actually travel. I still travel to Europe quite a bit and give, and give talks, give speeches about um, and I defend actually the United States. I will never spend a moment defending the Trump administration, but I will uh, do everything I possibly can to defend the United States. And what would I? What do I talk about? I talk about say how we are. Let's talk about how the fact that um, the United States pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, right? um which i think is a disastrous uh, d- disastrous decision absolutely disastrous decision but let's look at what cities and states are doing um let's look at what the private sector is doing in the united states the united states right now is greener than we have ever been now we are on a much steep a much um steeper slope under the obama administration moving to towards renewable energy um and it's much more subtle now but uh states state after state city after st- city Private, private entity after private entity has 2030 targets, 2020 targets to make ourselves cleaner and greener, and investing in a big way. So those are the stories I like to tell. I like to talk about the 2018 election. Look, uh, American politics is a pendulum; uh, it swings. You know, it's a, it's a it's a pendulum, and we all know that. So as as we have swung pretty uh, aggressively to the right uh, in in 2016, we swung back uh, pretty dramatically in 2018. So let's talk about that. And, and that is about giving people faith and trust in the American system, um, that the system is stressed out, as stressed as it, I believe, is under the Trump administration, is still holding firm and is still working. Uh, uh, and uh, I think we see that front and center in the 20, 2018 elections. And I think we're seeing that every single day now because of the congressional oversight we're seeing, um, we're seeing in Congress. So I, I would like to say to the international community, you know, don't give up on us. We're still here uh, and we're still fighting. You have a lot of people much like me. And there's millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, probably of people like me um, who are actively trying to reclaim what I believe are true American values. Uh, so don't you know, you you can you can dislike the Trump administration. I dislike the Trump administration, but don't dislike them. Don't dislike the United States. Don't dislike Americans because there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good still happening in this country.
0: One of the areas you touched on was North Korea-U.S. relations. The U.S.-North Korean summit broke down without an agreement after Donald Trump refused Kim Jong-un's demands for sanctions relief. What do you think about Donald Trump's performance at the summit and his handling of North Korea in general?
1: So because I think it's two things, handling of North Korea in general, meaning uh, direct engagement. I don't I don't um, I don't struggle with. I I am actually someone who uh, looks at look at say look at the Obama administration policy vis-a-vis, say, Iran or Cuba. We looked at policy that had existed for decades Hadn't really, uh, hadn't been successful. So it's time to change, time to, time to do something different. Uh, and I support that. So I support a different approach to North Korea. What I, what drives me crazy about the way that, uh, the Trump administration approaches North Korea, I think it approaches it with tremendous naivete. The fact that we've had two incredibly high profile summits. Um, where the world community uh, co- uh convenes in some city in asia and uh for some for some major talk uh, is just not the way it's supposed to work and when i say it's not the way it's supposed to work you it's 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 a black eye as far as i'm concerned to leave those summits without real deliverables uh, and i don't think we saw them out of uh out of singapore and i don't think we saw them out of vietnam this this past uh, out of uh, hanoi this past week and so that goes to in my mind a very naive approach to foreign policy the, the trump administration uh the, uh trump administration um uh, pursues, which is, you know, let the smart diplomats do the work. There is no need for a summit with Kim Jong-un every six months. There are brilliant people that are part of the American government uh, working together with the Chinese and the South Koreans and the Japanese to try to figure out how to deal with this problem that has plagued the world for decades now. Let's figure out how to solve it. But this 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 I think kind of strongman approach to American foreign policy that Donald Trump thinks that he can walk into any room with any world leader and figure out how to charm him or her into getting what he wants has proven to be tremendously naive and has reduced uh, the American standing in the world once again. I think we were embarrassed uh, once again this week and um, I think it's a shame now I'm glad that he didn't accept the deal. Uh, I'm glad he didn't. But it, to me, he doesn't get points for that. Uh, we should have known all this before going into the meeting. A good diplomatic approach, you would know exactly what you are walking into. And uh, it's quite clear to me that we didn't know what we were walking into. And, and that means that uh, that means that our diplomatic efforts fell far short.
0: So you think Donald Trump was right to begin those talks with Kim Jong-un in the first place? You think that was a good step? well i think the bilateral
1: conversation between donald trump and kim jong un was far happened far too quickly uh very often so again i mean I, what what i and again you know i I've, I've been outside of this for a few years so take this hypothetical with a grain of salt if you will but uh, what i think needed to happen was a whole bunch of summits in 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 a in a beijing or a seoul or a tokyo um, well in advance of any conversations happening between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, there's the deputy assistant secretaries, the assistant secretaries in, uh, in the State Department, uh, in the intelligence services and the defense departments. These are the military leaders. They could all come together before you ever involve uh, the president and Kim Jong-un, who, of course, is a Uh, notorious human rights abuser, and we didn't even touch on that, which is kind of a different topic. Uh, but it's certainly connected. But I, there just needs to, you do, you need to do your due diligence. You need to get the global community together. Uh, you need to know exactly what you're asking for, uh, before, uh, you, you have those bilateral talks between the two leaders, uh, which turn out to be more of a photo op than, than anything else anyway. Uh, but you need to know what you're asking for. And I, I think sometimes that takes years. Look, I mean, it's a, a good I, to me, a good example of this. So, uh, Barack, when we when we were talking about the JPCOA, the, the Iran deal uh, under the Obama administration, this was it took years to figure out years to figure out. And there was never a bilat and there was never a bilat to get it done between the leaders of the United States and Iran or the leaders of the countries and Iran it was uh it was done by John Kerry the secretary of state as well as the working level people inside the state department for years negotiating uh with the Iranians and eventually getting a deal and that's what should happen here as opposed to could you imagine if Barack Obama had gone to I, wherever, had gone to Riyadh or Dubai, met with, the, met with the leader of Iran and then walked out saying no deal. It would have been an embarrassment. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, but we did our due diligence. It took years. Uh, it sometimes feels one step forward, two steps back. But you get a deal done. And uh, whether however you feel about the deal is actually not uh, is, is is not as relevant. I personally support it. But that's the way diplomacy is supposed to work. It's not bringing the global community to a uh, for a photo op in, in Singapore or Vietnam. Uh, I, I just think it's I think it's naive, uh, and I think it makes uh, and I think it makes you look foolish. And I think that's what we saw happen here.
0: Do you think the lack of summits in advance of the meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un was due at least in part to the lack of? diplomats that were appointed by the Trump administration after Donald Trump took office. The U.S. ambassador to South Korea, an important role particularly when it comes to dealing with North Korea, there was no U.S. ambassador in that role between 20th of January 2017 to 7th of July
1: 2018. Well, 100 percent, I think it's problematic. But I also um, but it's 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 symptomatic of a larger problem with the Trump administration. Which, um, and it goes back to an earlier conversation we were having about does Trump rely on his advisors? Um, he is he is a you know he's never he is always when he's run his businesses he runs it uh, he runs businesses as he is completely, uh, as it is fair for him to do, is in, in, as a dictator in, in many ways. he, he The buck stops with him. He makes the decision. And there's not a tremendous amount of uh, disagreement or oversight there. I think when it comes to North Korea, uh, he goes with his gut. Uh, he thinks, in my mind, he thinks that he can get in that room and he can strike a deal. Uh, and that is without taking the advice of his trusted advisors. So in my mind, that means he hasn't really prioritized putting people in those jobs because, frankly, he doesn't much care what they have to say. Now, there I will say this. There are very, very good and smart and capable people that are working on this issue inside the U.S. government. But I would hope that uh Donald Trump listens to them uh, a bit more than uh, than he has. Uh, but I, I actually am not hopeful. Uh, I just wish I would, I guess, wish that he would be listening to uh, these uh, incredibly accomplished and intelligent minds that have been working uh, in that region for decades. And uh, it just doesn't seem that that is what he is doing
0: during the news conference after Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un's most recent meeting in Vietnam, talking about the death of Otto Warmbier and referring to Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump said, he tells me he didn't know about it and I take him at his word. Is this like the 2018 Russia-US summit in Helsinki all over again, where Donald Trump said he couldn't see any reason why Russia would have been involved in meddling in the 2016 presidential election because of assurances Trump had received from Putin? So
1: the answer is yes. And I think that what I find to be so disturbing about this, about exactly what you just said. Um, and, of course, he's he's come back and tweeted that he was taken out of context. Of course, he was not taken out of context. It, we, you, the quote you just used is something he said on camera. Um, you see over and over again, over the course of the last year or so, you see him deferring or uh believing Putin you see him apparently after a conversation with Erdogan in Turkey deciding to pull out of Syria you see him believing the crown prince of Saudi Arabia where we we uh we we have every reason to believe that the Saudis were responsible and the crown prince was involved uh, in the execution of uh, of a journalist uh, and then we see it again him believing uh giving the benefit of the doubt Uh, to Kim Jong-un, whose human rights abuses are notorious. And this is an American kid. And this is why I think it's, in some ways, to Americans is even more sort of egregious, because this is a young American college student who was convicted in North Korea of stealing a poster, stealing a poster, then sent to a prison camp, was tortured, comes home in a coma and dies, right? And Trump essentially says... Well, those are tough places. I just don't think Kim Jong-un had anything to do with it. Now, I don't, I don't, the the, the point, his statement there misses the point entirely. No one can ever prove that Kim Jong-un ordered the murder of Otto Warbier. That's not the point. The point here is that the system is corrupt. Their system is corrupt. That this was a massive, massive human rights abuse, as far as I can tell. And Trump seems to be siding with the North Koreans on it. Uh, uh, and it's just so disturbing, so disturbing. And we've seen it with Putin. We've seen it with Erdogan. We've seen it with the Saudis. And I think that, that you know, I, I I just I remember the days when that we would give the benefit of the doubts to the Brits and the Germans um, and, uh, and not the strong men who are uh, ruling their countries from around the globe. Um, and I and I find it frustrating that. We seem to be giving the benefit of the doubt to those strong men, where, whereas we question um, our most trusted allies. Again, the Brits, the Germans, the Canadians, the, and it's in the French. And it's just um, I, I just find that departure um, so sad, so depressing. Uh, and, and I think certainly it's something that a lot of Americans are incredibly concerned about. And I know it's something that the global community is very concerned
0: about as well. Why do you think Donald Trump chooses to align himself with leaders like Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin? Oh, boy.
1: Um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist here, um, which I think the psychology really, truly does have something to do with it. I, I, I don't know the answer to the question, and I wish I did, uh, because it doesn't. It, it, I, it, I, I cannot for the life of me figure out how that. Is beneficial to Donald Trump's presidency in any way, uh, and it, it, simply because those countries, those leaders, are not going to be loyal to us. Uh, they um, they are hyper nationalist in their own way. Uh, everyone you just mentioned, and I, I just simply don't understand it. Uh, I just simply don't understand it, and I wish I did. Uh, but it, it's it, it unfortunately makes me question whether or not Donald Trump's intentions as president are noble, meaning is he in this for uh, the betterment of the nation? Is he in it for public service? Or uh, is there some other more uh, more selfish reason why uh, why he's there? And, of course, that's something that we talk about in the United States every day, considering the political invest- investigations going on.
0: You told a story during an interview about when you were U.S. ambassador to Denmark and celebrated Pride Month in the country. You flew a Pride flag from your window, coincidentally directly at the Russian embassy.
1: Yeah,
0: did you ever find out how the Russian ambassador felt about that? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I, uh,
1: you know, it's it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, the, the whole story is, so my it's sort of the the. the uh, the American embassy and the Russian embassy are kind of facing each other across a a, a sort of a park in, in Copenhagen. And it was Pride Month. And uh, at the time, of course, the uh, very it was the, the Russian uh, and Putin specifically, uh, his their anti LGBT stance was was uh, real and somewhat uh, somewhat alarming. And so I figured, you know, what better way uh, to celebrate pride? and what I was trying to do, which was highlight global human rights, um, than to hang a hang a pride flag out my ambassador's office window, uh, towards the Russian ambassador's office. Uh was it a little provocative, maybe, but I, I actually think it's uh it was and and perhaps a little playful as well. Uh but it made the point that I wanted to make that uh this is this is something that the Americans stand for. And uh and 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 I think the Russians are moving in the wrong direction on this but no it wouldn't be the Russian style to to respond in any way to that
0: The current US administration as we've mentioned a moment ago has been seen as being too friendly towards Russia. While the US can't completely freeze out Russia they have to have some diplomatic engagement with them Uh, Absolutely How, How do you think the US should be treating Russia and Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I, I really do think it depends on the issue.
1: I mean, one of the, for example, uh, look, uh, we, when I was in Denmark, one of the issues that we dealt, dealt with the Russians on, and actually quite in a, in, in a very friendly way, uh, was Arctic engagement. There are only five countries that uh, border the Arctic Ocean. Uh, that's the U.S., Canada, uh the US, Canada, Norway, Russia and actually Denmark because of Greenland. And so uh, the Arctic negotiations with the Russians were uh, were uh, were very friendly and and um, productive and constructive. The the idea being that we wanted to uh, we needed as those arctic nations uh, control what is happening up there. And so, so it, it, that was a good those were good diplomatic relations. Um and then there were other issues uh the most kind of egregious of which of course is the whole the whole um the whole engagement or the excuse me the russian invasion of crimea uh which needed to result in a very very firm and aggressive response uh and continues to warrant that uh there's other sort of uh, there there's other uh, initiatives like, say, Nord Stream Two, which is this natural gas pipeline that uh, is wants is heading to Germany from from Russia, bypassing Eastern Europe. Uh, that w- the Americans, actually the Obama administration and the Trump administration have very similar policies on things like that and very firm, um, anti, uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, uh, stances. So I, I, really do think it, 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 it varies on the, I mean, look, our, our foreign policy is, uh, very large and very diverse and intersects, uh, in different, uh, the, so for example, the trade related the, 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 the trade conversation would be very, very different from the Arctic conversation, which would be different from the conversation about Ukraine, which would be d- different from the energy conversation vis-a-vis Europe. So I, I think you have to have a very nuanced approach, but a very firm approach uh, uh, to diplomatic relations with Russia.
0: You can have a positive relationship with a country like Russia on some issues where you work together, where you agree, as you mentioned, work, for example, on the Arctic. Well on some other issues, taking a hard line stance and saying we firmly disagree, we don't support what you're doing here. A hundred percent.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, of course, the overall relationship needs to be viewed with a with a degree of skepticism. In my mind, um, yeah, I still believe that they're uh, an enormous and I, I still believe they're an adversary. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a constructive diplomatic relationship with them. Uh, Uh, the same thing could be said for a number of different countries around the world
0: During your time as US Ambassador to Denmark did you realize that you would become an international reality TV star (laughs) when you agreed to be the focus of the Danish series I Am the Ambassador
1: Uh, I can tell you this that that there is nothing that I anticipated less if you had told me that I was ever going to be the subject of a television show uh, I would have told you you were crazy so this is one of the most kind of certainly unexpected, um, and in the end, really quite wonderful story that uh, I didn't uh, didn't ever think didn't ever
0: think would happen. In I am the Ambassador, you opened up about your coming out story, how your parents found out about your sexuality and being openly gay, not just growing up, but currently at the time as an ambassador. How did being openly gay influence and impact your work? Was it ever a problem? You know, it's a really interesting... That whole
1: situation is very interesting. So I I was going to Denmark, which I knew, we all knew, Scandinavia, as it relates to issues regarding sexuality, issues of sexuality broadly, was going to be very progressive um, and very open. But what I found was really interesting when I arrived. So before I went most, both Danes and Americans would say your sexuality is not going to be an issue, but, and no one's going to really care. They're, they're, they're not going to be as interested in that. What I found was just the opposite. And I, it was that people were kind of fascinated that in my sexuality and including the media. So it was very often one of the first questions I would be asked by the media. So how does it feel to be here with your husband? How does it is a uh, we've never had a gay American ambassador here. How did, how how does that make you feel, kind of thing? And I just I was surprised because it what there was something still new about it. And part of it was because I was an American. Uh, part of it was because I think I, and this is an entirely positive thing. I think sending a thirty eight year old gay. Uh, ambassador to Denmark was kind of what the Danes wanted from the Obama administration. It was a very new presidency, of course, a modern presidency, and so the ambassador they got was was a sort of modern definition of what it meant to be American as well. Which sounds kind of stereotypical, but I think it's true in some ways because very often you will get a an ambassador that's much much older and sort of uh, and, and fits the traditional ambassador mold, and so I think. My appointment to Denmark, partially because of my sexuality, was was interesting to Danes. Um, And I was kind of nervous about that at first, I suppose. And I think the embassy was very nervous about that, too, that somehow my sexuality would be the defining thing about my ambassadorship, um, which I sort of, I'd never been a gay activist. That's not what I, that's not who I was. I, uh, I'm very open about my sexuality, but I, I never thought it was being, to be a gay activist, I was just bringing my husband to go meet the queen, right? And that is, that I guess is there's a level of activism associated with that because it's very high profile. Um, and it frankly doesn't happen very often still to this day. And, but I certainly wasn't going to leave Stephen at home and nor would Stephen have tolerated being left at home. So I, I, I suppose that raised eyebrows and that's okay. I think it was great. And, Ultimately, I think it was very, very positive. I, did I encounter some did, – did I hear about snide remarks? Of course, I did. Um, but it, that's like, – oh, I've cried too many tears in my life over issues like that, 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 I, that it doesn't bother me anymore. And so I – did. but I did – it did become a part of my ambassadorship, I think. But what I tried to do is sort of get – I talked about it as often as I could so that it did become sort of a secondary issue, um, after, after six months or so. And then of course that, the, with the wedding, we got married there. It became a, an issue again. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I never run away from it. I, I never try to, I never try to proactively, uh, I, I never proactively brought it up in a big way. I don't think, but I always answered the questions and I was always true about who I was. And, and I, and I think that that did matter.
0: Did you ever worry about being typecast as the gay ambassador? Was that ever a concern for you? Or for you, was it always just a part of who you were and it was always expected that people go and see that? Yeah, I mean, I, there to a certain extent, I did worry about that. I, I,
1: well, I, I should say, I, I, I don't know that I was worried about it. I was, I can tell you, people around me were worried about it. You shouldn't talk about this too so much. When we were very, you know, when we'd participate in pride in a very open and public way, there was definitely concern on the part of say the more traditional elements of the embassy, uh, that, that was kind of getting too political. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this was Obama administration policy. We were participating in prides all over the world and, the fact that I was gay just kind of highlighted it in this different way. But I, I, I got, I, I really do think that it was just part of going back to what President Obama told me right before I arrived, go be you. Well, my sexuality is such an important part of me. Um, and, and also it gave me an opportunity to tell a really amazing story, um, about the United States that, you know, here we were a country where we were talking about amending the Constitution to outlaw same-sex marriage as recently as, say, 2007. And here we were uh, legalizing same-sex marriage less than 10 years later. And that was this really wonderful conversation that I could have with a country like Denmark um, that had evolved on issues of sexuality earlier than Americans, but talk about how we are catching up and catching up quickly and tell that American story. So it allowed me to have that conversation, which was actually diplomatic, um, as, as well, I think. And so I, I did love, I loved that. I loved
0: that part. There are some countries throughout the world where homosexuality is illegal or deemed wrong, Um, How did those countries, which you presumably had to work with, engage with, or at the very least meet, react to your sexuality? Did they ever acknowledge it? Would they just flat out ignore it? How did they respond to that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, I, I have to say that publicly. So the diplomatic community is very polite, of course. And it's certainly uh, there were certainly other gay ambassadors in Denmark from other countries, not as high profile as I was. Uh, but certainly there were other gay ambassadors. Um, our spouses would be invited to the the receptions of the say the Turks or the Saudis or the Russians. Um uh, but I, so I would say it was polite, but not particularly open, meaning they, they wouldn't make any effort, but they, they went through the motions. And I, I will say this that, you know, most of these people in these countries have lived and worked all over the world. So, um, uh, they're used to, in the diplomatic circles, at least used to, uh, diversity in that sense in a way that you might not see, uh, obviously, on the ground in their country. So I, 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 that was never really an issue. I have to say that Stephen was not particularly ever interested in going to the receptions of those countries uh, just because of how uh, they treated or criminalized homosexuality. So he would often not come, uh, but I would still go.
0: How did it feel having such a large platform as an openly gay man yourself, To stand up for and promote LGBT rights and equality.
1: You know, I I thought it was, um, I guess you realize how much it matters still. And I think in a country, for for example, in a country like Denmark, again, which is very evolved on LGBT rights, um, I would have, I can't tell you how many times I would have gotten say Facebook messages or Instagram messages from young gay kids uh, who grew up in the Danish countryside who, Um, had just come out to their parents and it didn't go well and thanked me for being as public and open as I was because it gave them hope that they could have a good life going forward or parents whose kids just came out and said, you know, I never knew another gay person until I met you until I saw you or read, read an interview with you. And that, so you realize that around the world in our communities, even in the more evolved communities and, you know, Let's not even start talking about this, the again the Middle East or Africa or, or Eastern Europe. That even in the West, even in the West where we've made so much progress, uh, there are still hearts and minds to change. And so the ability to do that it really is um, is is such a privilege and such an honor and something that cannot be taken lightly. Something you have to take. Uh, there's a enormous responsibility that comes with that. And so I'm, I, I really I value that part very very much. I and now. Long after my ambassadorship, um, because of the TV show, because of the Netflix show, I will get messages almost every day from young, mostly LGBT um, kids just thanking me for my honesty and my openness. And and I and and it's that's a, it's again, you realize the responsibility that comes uh, with having that platform.
0: You said during your time as an ambassador that President Barack Obama has made LGBT rights in connection with human rights a major international diplomatic priority. Do you think the U.S. is still committed to promoting LGBT rights around the world, either under the Trump administration or despite the Trump administration?
1: Um, The answer is yes. Yes. Am am I troubled? So, And I I think the Trump administration has a mixed uh, and mostly negative record on this. Uh, I was encouraged to see a week or two ago that uh, there is is an initiative uh, where uh, we wanted to fight the criminalization of homosexuality globally. And I think that's I think that's great. Um, I think this is an issue that it's not that it's over. Uh, but I think American public opinion—I'll say it this way—that American public opinion is decided on this issue now, and it would take a, a big political change to turn it around. make Meaning, make make people say want to overturn marriage equality or discriminate against the, the majority. It would take it would take a major political turnaround for to see the majority of Americans again approve of discrimination uh, against LGBT people. Um, so or at least at least the, the trans conversation is probably a little different than the than the lesbian, gay, bisexual conversation. The trans conversation is a little more complicated in the U.S. as it is globally. Uh But we've made enormous progress. And so I think that the American the, the Americans will continue to do this good work. Um, and sometimes I believe I, I think most of the time the Trump administration will be a big hurdle um, uh, especially on the trans on, on the trans piece, but uh, in large uh, and and things like religious freedom, which is just uh, in my mind, just uh, another another form of discrimination uh, or or discrimination by by an, an excuse for discrimination. Um, but uh, but I do think that we've we've overcome this issue and and we've won it for the most part. But that doesn't mean, and I always say this too, just because you've won doesn't mean that you can't start to lose. And so you've got to continue to push and you've got to continue to talk about this stuff. You've got to continue to change hearts and minds uh, because the moment you stop is the moment you start to lose.
0: Donald Trump recently declared a national emergency on the U.S.-Mexico border because he's been unable to secure funding for his border wall from Congress or Mexico, as he promised he would during the campaign, claiming there is a crisis on the southern border. You responded to Donald Trump's national emergency declaration by saying, quote, the greatest national emergency is the one that (laughs) sits inside the Oval Office.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so sometimes Twitter is a, is, a, is, a, is a sometimes I get emotional on Twitter. I will say that.
0: <laughs> what do you think of Donald Trump's decision and reasoning for his decision? Look, I find this to be just so
1: I I, I, I am. I am, in a, I am a lifetime idealist. I am an eternal optimist. But when I see this, it just drives me crazy. So the facts, just the sheer facts. Facts about this crisis on the southern border um, do, are, are don't so all the rhetoric coming. I should say it this way: all the rhetoric coming out of the Trump White House are not backed up by the facts that that the this invasion of central central uh, Central Americans uh, on the southern border, who are asylum seekers, by the way, asylum seekers. Um, this is just not it's 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 not real, meaning the numbers of illegal, the numbers of apprehension, the, the number of apprehensions uh of uh, illegal folks trying to cross our border are at the lowest level since 1971. That is just the facts. Um, and the idea that we are now calling this an invasion just screams of racism and un american to me. This is about fear of the other. They're talking about gang members and illegal immigrants uh, committing murder. When all the evidence suggests that natural born Americans are far more inclined to commit violent crime than illegal immigrants. Now, I am also somebody that thinks that our immigration policy has to be driven by law and order. There have to be rules and we can't stand for illegal immigration, but the, the, the racism that the Trump administration displays when talking about immigration is just unAmerican in every at its very core to me, and I find it so troubling. Which is why I tweet what I tweet after this ridiculous emergency declaration that even Republicans in the House and Senate um, have voiced serious concerns about. Uh, the House of Representatives just passed um, just passed a bill, essentially overriding. The, the the president's emergency declaration, I don't know if the Senate will as well, uh, but there were a number of Republicans who supported Democrats on this. I think it's um, I just think it's a, a real, real, real problem for a variety of different ways, for a variety of different reasons.
0: Do you think one of the issues here with the Trump administration's approach is the fact that often in these conversations, they conflate. Asylum seekers with refugees, with illegal immigrants, etc. cetera. They, they merge all of these groups into one label of people who are trying to come across the southern border when all of the groups need to be viewed differently. And, 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 and I actually think you articulated
1: that better than what I said earlier. Because I think that, so if the way that Donald Trump talks about these Central American caravans, which are, for the most part, uh, families who are fleeing gang-ridden communities uh, where they fear for them and their children's safety and are looking for a better life for them and their children who are looking to to uh, seek asylum in the United States. This is what our country was based on since its founding. Uh, these uh, refugees, whether they were from Europe or Southeast Asia, um, that is what our country was founded on, and they are following the rules technically uh, that the vast majority of these people are waiting to file their asylum claims and there is nothing illegal about that in fact it's the way the international community works and that is very different from someone who is trying to jump over a wall and so the, the conflation of all of of, of all of it um, I think again is seeped in this idea of of uh, this this concept of an invasion, um, it does feel so sort of racist and un-American at its very core. Um, uh, and it feels, you know, it's just so funny to me. And then one of the things I've been doing in recent uh, months is listening to say how the, the godfather of modern republicanism, Ronald Reagan, talked about immigration. And you look at the, one of the final speeches he gave as president, and talked about how and it is such a conservative principle that the United States should always be the bright, the beacon of hope for oppressed people around the world. And we should in- always encourage these people. Um, we always want to be that beacon of hope for these people and we want them to come in and to see how that cons- how the Republican Party has become so xenophobic um, in just the last couple of decades is is really, really troubling in so many ways.
0: Why do you think Donald Trump is continuing to pursue his policy of building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border when it is damaging U.S.-Mexico relations? It's unpopular with so many voters in the U.S. and when Congress has refused to fund the building of that border wall? You know, I think it all goes back
1: to a campaign promise that, you know, he was there. There is certainly an element. uh There is a far right xenophobic anti-immigrant uh element in the United States, just like there is in every country. And Donald Trump was elected by getting those people to vote for him. And uh it, it, I don't want to say to his credit, but he knows that his credibility is in some way tied to this idea of a wall, a physical barrier, because that's. You know, at every Trump rally in 2016, there was a build that wall chant. Um, And I think that he knows how weak he will be perceived amongst those people if he can't get the wall built.
0: We mentioned in the introduction, you recently joined the board of Run for Something, an organization that helps recruit and support young people running for office. Can you tell us a bit about the work of the organization and what inspired you to get involved with it? Yeah, I think so. It's a really it's it's kind of a it's and I uh, I
1: see elements of my own journey in this to a certain extent. So after the 2016 election, um, people, frankly young and old, um, were compelled to run for office because they saw the Trump election as something that, like I did, to be very very troubling. Um, and so this group of just a few. Uh, People coming off the, both, I think, both the Obama and Hillary, Obama and 12 and then Hillary in 16 campaigns, said so they wanted to set up, um, set up an organization that was committed to helping young people run for state and local office. So this idea that, and this is for Democrats, so Democrats needed to do a better job running, uh, in, uh, encouraging people to run for city council locally, encouraging people to run for state Senate and state House races, so lower level seats. Um, and to build the bench, to build the, the next generation bench, and 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 to have younger people, people of color, women, uh, step up and do this. And so, what was so phenomenal as I as as the organization approached me, they had something like they had close to thirty thousand people, um, uh, inquire, sign up with Run for Something in just the first couple of years of this organization. Now then, the organization helps train you and mentor you and give you information. Uh, about how you run, run a campaign at the level you're running, uh, run, level you're running at. Because I think for so many people out there, um, they want to do it. They want to serve, uh, but they don't know how to. And it feels daunting and overwhelming. So the organization is dedicated to, uh, helping however they can. And, um, uh, and it's just been, I think it's really been an incredible, incredible success story. One of the many, really interesting success stories uh, since the 2016 election.
0: Why is it so important to get young people engaged in and involved with politics? It's something that Run for Something does. It's something you talked about that you attempted to do during your work as an ambassador. Yeah, I I think this is so it's, uh, you know, there's
1: a lot of conversation about. um, So I, I would often say that older people are very skeptical of millennials. Um, that there's this sense that millennials don't have any direction or unfocused uh, um, and don't have the kind of work ethic or respect for authority uh, that um, will lead them to be good great leaders of the future. And I found that to be a very, very frustrating and not accurate assessment of what this generation of young people, uh, what drives this generation of young people. Um, I do think there's I do think millennials uh, have a very different perspective than older generations, including mine. I'm 44 right now. And sadly, I'm anything but a millennial. I'm very much Gen X. Uh, but it, I, I just think you have to approach them in different ways. Um, and I think that millennials are very, very uh, committed to public service, committed to changing the world. But you have to you, know, you may have to provide a little bit more structure and direction uh, uh, show them how to do it and so I think that's kind of where things like run for something come from and that's even where what what, what run for something is good at I should say because um, it gives them the tools with which they can do it um, and it's sort of what I tried to do as ambassador too is is um, is show people don't just talk at people I think it's Millennials don't have much of a tolerance for people talking at them, um, sort of lecturing at them. Uh, they want this to be a kind of a, a, a dialogue, and so I always wanted to try to, I, I always wanted to try to engage millennials that way, go to them and have a conversation about these issues. And the most awesome thing about my, the best thing that ever happens to me, still to this day, when I go back to Denmark. Is having young people come up to me on the street, which happens and just say, you know, you made me want to be a public servant. You made me want to be a, an ambassador or, or involved uh, in, um, in some way uh, with community or service. And I just think that's, a, that's the absolute best thing in the world. Uh, but I just think it means you got to try a little hard and uh, try a little harder, uh, uh, with young people.
0: Talking about running for office, the 2020 Democratic primaries have kicked off with several individuals announcing their candidacy and a number of others expressing interest in running for the nomination. You tweeted on 23rd of January that you, quote, don't understand why people who have no chance of winning the nomination decide (laughs) to run. Yeah. Do you want to tell us who you're referring to? I know, and there was no and there
1: were I forget what the t- so this is the, this is how I feel about that. I think I was honestly just reading some article about people I had never heard of who are running I, I i and yes that is that is something I tweeted it's actually also something I believe and I, and I can explain it the reason why is because I think the way we beat Trump is uh well it's this it's that i it goes back to something the concept behind run for something that this concept that Running for state and local office, running for city council, when we have people who are unqualified to be president, I I should I should say it this way. I don't think the response to Donald Trump's election is that, oh, my God, anybody can be president. So I should run, too. That's not what this should be about. There are so many different ways to serve other than running for president. So when I see if we're going to have 25 people running for president, some of whom you've never heard of before, that screams like screams a, a, a vanity project to me that you are doing it for self-promotion. Um, I want to win this election in 2020 with public with as by talking about by reclaiming patriotism that I actually believe that we have a president right now who is not patriotic and um, is doing this. Who originally ran to promote his personal brand um, and continues along that path. And so I want to reclaim patriotism um and and I and and talk about service in a new way, and so I want to identify a candidate and support a candidate that has a very very long and proud, proud history of service and so and and then, when I see people i've I've never heard of deciding to run for president, i think god the 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 time that you could spend making your community better, that you are now spending going to Iowa and New Hampshire um I just find to be disappointing i mean you know anybody can run for president that's their prerogative but it's just uh this can't be an ego this can't be an exercise in ego it has to be an exercise in service
0: should i take this as announcement that you are not intending to seek the democratic <laughs> nomination? i i i am not i am not seeking the democratic nomination for
1: president in 2020 no and as as um to disappoint many danes in particular that's a, that's a, it's not but that's the point is that do I do do I have experience that would lend itself to some sort of uh, to some political career? Probably. But this this can't be about me. I, I just I I am committed to doing everything I possibly can to elect a Democrat president in 2020. But it's not about me. This is about the country. This is about service. And uh, and so I'm going to I will roll up my sleeves and, and work my butt off. Uh, to be honest, you know, I ran in, in 18, as you talked about in your opening, and I lost. Uh, I, uh, not for president, of course, for Congress. And, um, but you know what? You lick your wounds, put, pull yourself back up and then, uh, remember why you were in it for, in the first place, which is, uh, to serve. And right now I can, I, I know how I can serve and, and the way I can serve is by, um, helping another candidate, uh, cross that finish line, uh, and be elected president.
0: Do you have a preferred candidate or someone you'd want to run who you'd be excited about, who you're most excited about so far? Oh, I have so much.
1: So I, the answer is it's a, hard, it's a hard question for me to answer, but I will make that decision in the next couple of months uh, once we see the full field uh, shape out, once we really know all of the people running. Uh, I've, I've known most of them for years. I've worked for a bunch of them. Um, and so I, I am in the process of talking with the candidates and, and their teams and uh, uh, trying to decide. Um, so much of this will be about electability, who I think is best um, to go up against Trump in a general election in 20. Uh, I love I mean, look, I obviously worked for Joe Biden for eight years. Uh, I think he's a remarkable public servant. And I think he'd be a great uh, a great uh, candidate against Trump. I think age is a concern, and I, I do, and 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 I would say that openly. Um, I think Kamala Harris is a, a really remarkable candidate. I think she's had a phenomenal launch. Uh, I think she's the future of the party in many ways. Um, I've known her from my time in California. Um, I'm I'm a little concerned. I I, it's, I don't I I have, I have I have I'm excited and and still have concerns about every candidate. I, I um. It's uh, can we elect a Californian president? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I love uh, I love, love, love a candidate uh, named Sherrod Brown, who's a uh, senator from Ohio, who is a lifelong, uh, lifelong Democrat, liberal, progressive uh, and wins statewide in Ohio. whenever every other Democrat loses He has a way to talk to progressives and blue collar workers in a way that I think we need a lot more of and. In, uh, in the Democratic primary, and he hasn't declared his intention to run yet. I think he might. Um, and, uh, he would certainly be at the top of my list, but the, the other candidates. And it, look, I love Cory Booker. Um, I think some of the new governors who are launching Jay Inslee, I think Steve Bullock is interesting. Um, so I, uh, I, I like a lot of these guys, men and women, but, uh, but I will pick one, uh, do everything I can to elect him or her president. Uh, But then if uh, that person ends up losing, I will support whoever the Democratic nominee is uh, without reservation.
0: Ambassador Rufus Gifford, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Edward. I appreciate you having me. That was Rufus Gifford, former U.S. ambassador to Denmark and now a board member of Run for Something. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Rufus Gifford. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter, at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a 5-star rating on iTunes and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.